It's a great pleasure and honor today to introduce our distinguished writer, Kareel Phillips, a fellow West Indian author whose career I have followed with delight and great admiration. Born in St. Kitts, West Indies, brought up in England, a graduate of Oxford University, he's the author of numer numerous works of fiction and nonfiction, too many to mention, um, also a screenwriter and playwright. His novel, Dancing in the Dark, won the 2006 Penn Beyond Margins Award, and an earlier novel, A Distant Shore, was described by Time magazine as one of literature's great meditations on race and identity. And it won the 2004 Commonwealth Writers Prize. Also, it was a finalist for the Penn Faulkner Award. His other awards include the Martin Luther King Memorial Prize, a Guggenheim Fellowship, and the James Tate Black Memorial Prize for the novel Crossing the River. He's a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature and is presently a professor of English at Yale University. I first became acquainted with Kareel Phillips' writing while I was in England doing doctoral uh, research, um, and I read his first novel, The Final Passage, um, which was published in 1985, which dates me a little bit, but that's all right. This, it's the story of a young West Indian woman, um, the mother of a baby boy, her journey from her Caribbean island with her baby to England, and her experiences as an immigrant in the late 1950s. It's an extraordinary novel in its craftsmanship, but it was also outstanding for me then, and, and still is, in its perspective, in giving us the voice and perspective of a black West Indian woman one of the many who were part of an exodus of West Indians crossing the Atlantic to emigrate to the mother country, an arduous ship journey that can't help but be reminiscent of that third leg of the infamous triangular trade of slavery, um, the trade between Africa, the Caribbean, and England. No writer except perhaps Jean Rhys had given such a strong, moving portrayal of West Indian emigration and exile that centered on a female character. And it was certainly the first time in a fiction of exile dominated by male protagonists that a black female was at the center of the tale. Since then, his works of fiction and nonfiction have continued to shed light upon those whose lives have been disrupted. As he said in an interview, quoting him, <laughs> those people who are washed ashore and find themselves marooned in a very strange place by history are often the people who interest me the most. He continues to surprise us with bold, unpredictable choices of character and voice in works like Cambridge, a novel of slavery where the narrative voices are both those of a 19th century British woman and a black slave. And in his latest novel, In the Falling Snow, a story of second-generation immigrants in England, where the voices of old and young, of West Indians and British people seamlessly come together, and where one soliloquy, especially at the, at, in the middle of the novel, and I hope I'm not giving away too much, um, it's a soliloquy by the protagonist's father, is perhaps one of the most remarkable passages I've read in contemporary fiction. Um, it's been described by one critic quite aptly as incandescent. 
He's spoken eloquently about the uses and misuses of history in fiction and against the compartmentalizing of history, saying that the experience of the sailor on deck is as important as the experience of the slave below deck. And he's also said that individuals are ultimately much more complicated than historical forces or historical events. His skill as a writer and his humane vision are evident in his books and films and, and in the characters he's created, characters whose voices fill the silences of history, characters who continue to be remembered beyond the pages. Please join me in welcoming Carriel Phillips. Well, thank you. You can introduce me anytime. <laughs> that was uh, incredibly flattering. Thank you. Um, some of it was accurate. But uh, it was lovely to be introduced by another writer. Um, it's nice to be introduced by people who are not writers, but there's something kind of pleasant about another writer who seems to understand something about the, I think what Seamus Heaney once called the peasant's pilgrimage that we're all on. Um, in our various ways. And if you think um, saying that the final passage was published in 1985 dates you, I cringed <laughs> right there. Um, I told Margaret that I would not read from In the Falling Snow because uh, I wanted to check something. I was in South Africa last week um, and somebody asked, somebody asked me or suggested to me, I mean this is a country by the way as I'm, I'm sure everybody's aware, in which questions of identity, particularly racial identity, are pretty near the surface, and it's very, uh, it's very treacherous waters to sail into. Um, and somebody asked me in front of an audience uh, about my work, etc., and then said, but of course, you know, you would never, for instance, think of writing from the point of view of, let's say, um, a middle class English woman in her 50s, maybe a spinster, a widow perhaps, or a divorcee, because you, you know, we, you don't do that as writers. And there was, I didn't really have to say anything because I saw the puzzled looks around the audience. And he, he didn't mean it in a very, you know, in a nastily pejorative way or anything. He was just putting it out there, but I kept thinking, but I think I did that. <laughs> but I, think, I think I actually did. And then I came back, and I don't usually, I usually do what most authors do, I'm sure Margaret knows this, you usually read from your last book, because there's a sort of, a very unsubtle attempt to try to get people to buy it. <laughs> um, but I'm not going to do that. I'm actually going to read from the book that I went back and checked that I'd actually done this. So, in 2003, there's a novel called A Distant Shore. There's another reason I wanted to read I was just saying to Margaret beforehand that one of the things about identity now in Britain and in the United States of America is that the old binary opposition, um, you know, identity, let's define it, let's categorize it. You know, you don't like to use class too much in this country, I notice, but... Uh, in Britain, certainly class will come into the picture, and race, of course. But since September the 11th, we have to deal with, I think on both sides of the Atlantic, questions of faith 
and the way in which a certain group of people in uh, our societies um, on both sides of the Atlantic, people usually talking about Muslims, talking about Islam, um, that as a denominator of belonging or as a category which suggests participation or dwelling on the ex ex exterior periphery of society has become increasingly kind of problematic. So for a couple of reasons I wanted to read this passage and uh, we're at this stage. For a woman of her age, she remains in pretty good shape. She was never a beauty, but in her day she was able to turn the odd head. A few men even whistled after her in the street. Not that they were really interested, but they noticed her. And then they stopped noticing her. And by the time she and Brian had entered their thirties, she was walking down the street to complete silence. Brian seldom walked anywhere these days, for he preferred to drive his company car to work, to the golf club, to his business dinners. Brian seldom bothered to put the car away in the garage. He justified his laziness by banging on about how dangerous the streets were these days and how you only had to travel a mile or two in any direction to find yourself in the British equivalent of Beirut. He didn't like it when she reminded him of the Chadwicks who were driving along the avenue at the end of the road and minding their own business when suddenly they were blocked in by two vans. Four men jumped out of the vans and bashed in their windscreen with wrenches and took all their jewellery and their money and so, to her way of thinking, it didn't seem to matter much where you were these days. People seemed to feel that they could pretty much do whatever they liked to you. There'd even been a story in the local paper about a woman who was badly beaten up by a gang of kids in the park across the way when she tried to stop some young hooligans from mugging her six-year-old daughter for her bike. But because Brian never listened to her when she said that he ought to walk but just be vigilant, and because he used the preponderance of street crime to justify his laziness, Brian began to grow tubby. Their infre infrequent lovemaking became for her deeply connected with the problem of shifting one's weight. Brian hated her to mention his pot belly, so she stayed quiet on this subject, which was generally how they passed through their thirties and their forties with each other, by staying quiet. And then he left her, and the quietness intensified and threatened to overwhelm her, until she noticed Mahmoud. All things considered, she planned her assault quite well. Nice perfume, translucent nail polish, grey hair unbunned and the neckline just daring enough to suggest that what lay beneath the horizon might still be worth exploring. And much to her surprise, it worked. These days he arrives every Thursday evening at seven o'clock precisely. Before he comes round, she lights a dozen scented candles and then she turns off the lights. She plumps the cushions and places a white china bowl of mixed nuts on the glass-topped coffee table. She once tried savouries, but he didn't take to them very well. Another time she tried music, but he listened for a while and then told her to turn it off. He didn't ask her to turn it off. He ordered her with one hand busily pulling his lobe 
as though her choice of Chopin had somehow damaged his oriental ear. These days, she doesn't bother with either savouries or music. After seven o'clock, he knocks twice, and then he rattles the letterbox so that the flap clatters noisily. She's lost count of the number of times she suggested to him that knocking at the door is sufficient. But he seems to be helplessly addicted to the letterbox. However, as she quickly draws the curtains and then pads her way to the door, she reminds herself that this annoying little habit of his is just another part of their ritual. Mahmoud is tall and striking. To begin with, he used to step through the door and bend and kiss her on the forehead before stooping to unlace his shoes. He would place them side by side like soldiers in the hallway and then follow her into the candlelit living room. Back then, he was slightly apprehensive and she liked the way that his eyes danced nervously around the room without ever alighting on anything. She loved his smell, which was strangely sweet and cloying, but she knew that it didn't mask anything unpleasant. Mahmoud was scrupulously clean, and she understood that whatever oils or lotions he rubbed into his skin were in all likelihood related to his culture, and she didn't mind. In fact, back then, she didn't mind anything about him. Since Brian had left, she had only entertained one other man, a recently widowed partner of Brian's from the bank. However, this man had come to visit wearing a parka, some grubby slacks and trainers, not the suit and the tie and the smartly polished shoes that she'd been expecting. It was a Sunday afternoon, but there was still no excuse for such ill manners. He demanded a piece of lemon wedge with his tea, and he seemed disappointed that she was only able to offer milk and a tablespoon of honey that she managed to scrape from the bottom of an old jar. He then proceeded to praise his former wife's abilities at knitting tea cozies and bed socks, and he lectured her on the excessive calories in date and walnut cake. She offered him a digestive biscuit instead, but he refused, and then when he went to leave, she was forced to momentarily endure the rough wood of his tongue in her mouth. It was after this visit that she planned her campaign with Mahmoud, who at least initially managed to exude both coyness and interest. These days, Mahmoud has dispensed with this performance. Mahmoud manages to meet her eyes before stepping first on the heel of one foot and then on the heel of the other, and wriggling his way out of his shoes. He still lines them up next to each other, but after such a dismal approach to their removal, this gesture seems almost insulting in its affected formality. She's relieved that he still seems amenable to eating first, for to dispense with the etiquette of the shared meal would be to abandon dignity. However, dignity is a word that Mahmoud seems to be increasingly unfamiliar with. These days he eats quickly, and often with one hand, always his right hand, and he makes noises that alarm her. Today is no exception. Having finished, he stares at her as she clumsily moves a piece of chicken breast up and onto the back of her fork. He watches closely as she dips the fork into the rice 
and then dabs the whole construction in a shallow pool of curry sauce before levering it towards her mouth. It's painful, for she understands that he's suppressing laughter. In bed, she knows that she satisfies. He always shudders, but he does so quickly now, and only once. These days their bodies separate with indifference, and Mahmoud is quick to give her his back. Sadly, her lover seems to have bolted down the short slope from attentive to perfunctory, without any intervening stages of incremental boredom. One week he took the time to speak with her before, during and, most importantly, after their relations. The following week he was racing through the motions as though he was late for an appointment. Gone were the revealing half-sentences. They call us Asians, but that doesn't mean anything, does it? or personal titbits that she could take as a sign of intimacy. When I see my reflection in a mirror, I know that I can never go back home. He used to listen to her when she explained what an electric blanket was, or when she told him what the difference was between a bishop and a priest. When she suggested that he read improving books, he took the trouble to ask her what she meant, and her use of the phrase birthday suits actually made him laugh out loud. They were, of course, in their birthday suits at the time. He kept laughing and repeating the phrase as though unable to comprehend the absurd precision of the imagery, and she laughed along with him. Today she bore his weight and coquettishly wrapped one leg around him as though she wished to pull him deeper, but she didn't. It was all show, a gesture to prevent her feeling as though she was merely an object speared. She doesn't blame Mahmoud for her present degradation, for she understands the real culprit to be Brian. She silently endured too many years of his conversation in the form of monologues about the virtues of architecturally designed patios and breakfast bars and the superiority of South African whites over French Chardonnay. Conversations in which her opinions were never sought. On other days, he would simply seize a seemingly random topic and start to complain. Did she realize that you used to be able to see a specific doctor, but now everywhere is a group practice, and you never know who the hell you'll be seeing? Was she aware of the fact that because of the bloody unions, his bank employees were now only allowed to interface with the public from behind anger-proof glass. She quickly learned that Brian had absolutely no interest in her opinions, but by not answering back, she allowed him to look through and beyond her until he finally convinced himself that she didn't exist. When Brian walked away, she too was convinced that he was walking away from nothing, and it hurt. However, at least to begin with, Mahmoud did not treat her as though she were invisible. She stares at his back. To be desired is not unpleasant, and to be mounted and entered suggests desire. In the beginning, she toyed with the idea of asking him to find a way to stay over. She wanted him to tell his wife, for Rosa that he had to visit his brother in Leicester, but somehow... She never found the courage to put this proposal before him, and he never suggested it to her of his own accord. 
One night, she did ask Mahmoud if the next day they might go to the town museum and see her visiting exhibition of priceless eastern miniatures. But he looked at her with disbelief, disbelief writ large across his brown face. With some effort, she was able to imagine that his curdled face was rejecting the art and not her company. She smiled, but inwardly she decided that she would never again suggest anything beyond the boundaries of their arrangement. She was not a woman who coped well with rejection, but if truth be told, Mahmoud had not rejected her. He had simply arrived at a place where he no longer felt it necessary to either woo or enchant his 55-year-old mistress. Strangely enough, she still trusts this lithe man who briefly visits her table on the way to her bed. When he first spoke to her outside the confines of his newsagent shop, he did so with a candor that he was sure that she was sure that Feroza had never been privileged to hear. He sat in her living room, loudly sipping strong tea, and nervously rubbing one blue-socked foot on top of the other. She told him that last week she had been furious at the ill manners of the woman ahead of her in the queue at the shop. The woman had complained that she could smell curry on her copy of Hello! magazine, and when poor Mahmoud had offered to refund her money, the rude so-and-so had simply stormed out. But they both knew that by itself this incident did not explain her asking him over for tea. She had framed the invitation as an opportunity for social intercourse and cultural exchange in an English home. But as he continued to sip loudly at his tea, her conversation stumbled and she heard herself comment that they had not had much weather of late. And then she fell silent and waited for him to talk which in due course he seemed eager to do. He told her about his first marriage at the age of twelve in his Punjabi village and how his family had arranged everything without any concern for his feelings. Mahmoud told her that he was traded as though he were a mule and used as the bargaining tool in a dispute between two families. He told her about the childish attempts at sex with his fourteen-year-old bride who quickly developed an appetite that a twelve-year-old boy could not satisfy. He admitted that in an attempt to master his woman, he beat her, and he recalled the many times she ran away and how her own father had once been forced to drag her back by her long black hair, screaming and kicking. The father slapped her face, and then suddenly remembering himself, he begged forgiveness from her husband, a twelve-year-old boy for this act of transgression. Mahmoud rose to his full height and thanked his father-in-law for returning his wife. In his heart, Mahmoud felt no anger towards his father-in-law. He felt only an embarrassment that his wife had humiliated him for all the village to see. She had made it plain that he could not control her, which, by extension, suggested that he couldn't control any woman. His fellow villagers not only sympathized with Mahmoud, they despised his wife for her refusal to play the part that had been assigned to her. Eventually, when he was 16, a delegation of men visited Mahmoud, and while they were careful to pay him all the respect that his position demanded, they suggested to him 
that unless he was prepared to beat his wife as though she were a carpet, he should return the woman and shame her. Despite the indignities that he had suffered, Mahmud could not find it within himself to habitually raise his hand to his wife, and he knew that it would be impossible to jettison this woman and keep his honour intact. Therefore, after the departure of the delegation, he made a decision. He had seen the many, many photographs that the men in England sent back to his village, photographs in which they posed holding a radio or standing beside a television set or sometimes just clutching a fistful of five-pound notes. Mahmoud made up his mind that he would leave for England and join his older brother in Leicester, where he owned three restaurants. He imagined that there, in England, there would be no problem finding a well-paid job of some description in Mrs. Thatcher's country. And after he had saved some money, his ambition was to go to university, hopefully to study law or medicine. Mahmoud dreamed of one day returning to his village in triumph as the most important man in the region, and he intended to spit in the face of the woman who had publicly humiliated him. But she knows that Mahmoud runs a modest newsagent's in a small town in the north of England that boasts neither a cathedral nor a university. Mahmoud lives in a place where, if on a Saturday afternoon, one happens to turn on the television set as the football results are being read out, towns of unquestionable insignificance will be freely mentioned, but Mahmoud's small English town will simply not exist. After ten years working in the kitchens of all three of his brother's restaurants and rising to a position where he ultimately had sole charge of the Khyber Pass, Mahmoud had managed to save enough money so that he could consider starting up a business of his own with his new wife, Feroza. However, Feroza was aware that her husband could no longer stomach the disrespectful confusion of running a restaurant. The sight of fat Englishmen and their wives rolling into the Khyber Pass after the pubs had closed, calling him Ranjut or Babu or Swamp Boy, and using poppadoms as frisbees, and demanding lager and vomiting in his sinks, and threatening him with, their, with his own knives and their beery breath, and bellowing for minicabs and food that they were too drunk to see, had already arrived on the table in front of them, was causing Mahmoud to turn prematurely grey. Feroza persuaded her husband that a newsagent's business would be better for them both, and having been born and brought up in Leicester, Feroza knew all the intricacies of how to sell the day's news to the English in either tabloid or broadsheet form. She persuaded their husband that they should leave the Midlands and raise their family in a small English town with decent schools and among people who still had some manners, and so Mahmoud had fled Leicester, thus incurring his brother's wrath, and only a year ago he had arrived with chubby Feroza to be greeted by the inhospitable gloating of those who lived in this town. Dorothy says very little about her own life, been concerned to make sure that the dominant narrative is male. After all, his story involves passion, it involves betrayal, it involves migration, sacrifice, and ultimately triumph. Mahmoud is a success. Her story 
contains the single word, abandonment. Curiously enough, she realizes that both their stories seem unconcerned with the word love, but she keeps this thought to herself. And then one evening, during the second month of their understanding, Mahmoud asked her about her life and specifically about her husband. She blushed, which given the fact that she was lying in bed with Mahmoud at the time, suggested that she still carried within her the painful residue of a relationship whose memory she'd been trying to shed for the past five years. He left me, she said. He left me and he ran off with a younger woman. She paused. And then I left Birmingham and I came back to live up here. She slowly inclined her head away from Mahmoud and wondered if a trip to the bathroom or excusing herself to go and make a cup of tea might be considered impolite. He said nothing. She imagined Brian parking his car in a succession of country laybys and spending the late afternoons wondering just what on earth had happened to his life. And why not? For she was probably at home with a glass of sherry asking herself the same question. Her teaching career no longer interested her, and although she still derived pleasure from music, he no longer gave her joy. Joy was an emotion which soared on wings, which suggested transcendence, but her life with Brian was firmly anchored. No joy. And then there were Brian's women, who, like Brian, she imagined to be overweight. She smirked at the thought of the dreadful collisions that she presumed must pass for sex, with Brian no doubt casting himself as a star performer. But it was pathetic, really, for she could always tell when he was at it because he stopped wearing a vest. Mahmoud said nothing about Brian having run off with a younger woman, and so she turned to face him and pulled herself up and onto one elbow. Are you really interested in my life? I mean... There's not really much to it, you know. Mahmoud continued to stare at her with his dark eyes and said nothing. Thank you. Um, that was wonderful. Um, I started coming up with all sorts of questions I wanted to ask you just based on that, on that reading. Um, it was really just Thanks. spectacular. Um, I was thinking that so much of your work um, involves the sort of presenting male characters in, in sometimes a rather unpleasant light, misbehaving, um, being unpleasant in their, their relationships with women and so forth. Um, and I, I wondered what sort of reaction you get from male readers about that? I mean, do they sort of say, well, Cavs, how could you make us look so bad? <laughs> um, I mean, if I were to write about things like that, I'd be, you know, it would be described as feminist. Are you thought of sort of as a feminist writer? I, I feel like I could almost describe you as that. I mean, part of the problem of writing a book is feedback. I mean, if you write a play... You can go in the theater, and you can sit in the theater, and you can tell if they're laughing in the right place, or if, usually not, um, or if they're, if they're leaving the auditorium. Or you, can, you can do the thing like in the movie The Producers. You can go in the bar at half time, right. and order a drink, and just eavesdrop, and listen to what they're saying. Um, 
The same thing, actually, if you write a film, you know, you can go into the, you pay your $10 and you can go in and sit there. Uh, first of all, you can hope that somebody else is in there with you. Um, and then you can sort of gauge the response. But if you're writing a novel, unless you're crazy enough to stand in borders all day by <laughs> P and see who's coming along, you don't really know what people think. Um, you don't, I, I don't read reviews, you see. So I don't read reviews or interviews or anything like that. So I just don't know. Forums like this, uh, or talking to students if I go to a college or a university, or if I read in a bookshop or somewhere, then you get a sense from the questions that are coming. But otherwise, it's um, unless you go seeking it out, there's not a lot of echo coming back mm -hmm. from other people. Right, right, right. Um, I wanted to also ask you about the wonderful voices that you, you know, create in, 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 in these books. There's the polyphony, really, I guess one might call it, and how that's inescapable in a way, I think, sometimes for the West Indian writer. Um, just having so many different voices, because in one West Indian family, um, you're often dealing with so many, you know, several migrations, um, several races, several racial identities um, compressed in, in, into the life of one family. And just in my own writing, sometimes um, I find myself in the middle of, of, of a novel and I'm thinking, Margaret, why did you make it so complicated for yourself? <laughs> why can't you just write something, you know, with a linear narrative, just one voice, <laughs> um, one time period instead of several generations jumping back backwards and forwards. But I'm wondering, what do you think? Is, is, is it just something to do with this, the, our, you know, history and the way it's inescapable? I don't think it's to do with West Indians particularly. I mean, you know, if you, anybody who's migrated, anybody, I mean, this country is made up of migrants. I mean, this is what, I mean, I don't think the, the Pilgrim Fathers didn't have any visas or anything. Right. You know, I mean, they they arrived here as illegal immigrants. So the country is made up of of migrants. And so I think it's very much in this country, it's part of the national narrative. Uh, stories of migration, stories of assimilation, adjusting, participating in American life. It's very hard to do that in a linear way with the narrative being linear. Mm -hmm. um, because the very nature of the story is broken. You know, yeah. it's broken linguistically, it's broken culturally. Once you've crossed water, right. the story, the narrative is broken. So to, to try to write a novel which suggests, or a book which suggests a kind of 19th century continuities, you know, the kind of a, a novel such as Dickens or Flaubert, a novel which is based upon certainty of place, time, and you know that when you get up in the morning, the day is pretty much going to be like it was yesterday. Um, doesn't really work if you're writing about migration, either forced migration or involuntary migration, um, because it's narr the narrative is punctuated by awkward, anxiety-filled ruptures. Right. Um, right. So your form will adjust to the subject matter. Right. Um, <laughs> So I, I think it's, yes, it's true of Caribbean writing, but I also find it's true of any kind of writing that is to do with movement. Right. Although it is so much part of our generation's history, 
I mean, and our identities as Caribbean writers, um, just trying to um, just look back on so many of the, the silences, in a way, voices that were never given. Um, you, know, you know, nobody calls me a West Indian writer anymore. anymore. No. No, uh, I was going to ask you about I mean, that, too. They can call me whatever they want. <laughs> you know, it, I can't worry about that too much. But it's yeah. interesting, I was listening to your incredibly generous introduction there, and you were talking about me as a Caribbean writer, but, um, you know, where do the, these labels usually come from bookshops or booksellers. Um, you know, you've got to put the books somewhere in the shop, right. or librarians, <laughs> or academics who are putting together syllabus for this course or for that course, um, all of which are very legitimate groupings. Um, I have no argument. I'm flattered to be in the course. I'm flattered <coughs> to be in the bookshop. Um, but the labels, um, every writer has this. Some labels are more applicable mm -hmm. than others. Um, the Caribbean one is one that is used quite frequently because obviously mm -hmm. that's my place of birth. But I learned to read and write in Britain. Right. I grew up in Britain. Whether Britain likes it or not, it's responsible for me. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, and there's the old Robert Frost quote, you know, about home is a place where when you have to go there, they have to take you in. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry, Britain, but you have no choice. Right. You know? right. 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 So it's, it's, uh, it's a kind of movable feast. The Caribbean's yeah. a bit like that. I'm not yeah. sure. I've lived in this country now for 21 years. Um, I still get the heebie-jeebies at JFK, you know, mm -hmm. but uh, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I s somehow sneak past homeland security. It's also indicative of the time we're living in. I mean, maybe that 30 or 40 years ago, the term Caribbean writer probably yes. would have been more applicable. Yeah. Um, and now, it's, it's, it, it, you know, the boundaries are shifting. Yeah. Now, that leads me to another question as I, I always like to ask writers. And um, when you were growing up in England and falling in love with literature, um, who were you falling in love with <laughs> in terms of writers? I mean, who were the ones that were influencing you? And, just making you very excited about writing. I liked big novels where you could hide in a novel, mm. particularly from your parents. <laughs> um, Tol a Tolstoy, um, Thomas Hardy. Oh, love Thomas. Um, love, love Hardy. <laughs> Dostoevsky, Pasternak. You know, I like those novels where you just get lost in the book. The kind of, I mean, I was, I was in my office, yes, I was at Yale yesterday, and a couple of students came in to see me carrying Anna Karenina. And I said to them, you know, if Tolstoy was alive today, he'd be writing The Wire. <laughs> he wouldn't be doing Anna Karenina. I mean, because the, the Wire is basically Anna Karenina. Yeah. I mean, it's a comprehensive <laughs> view of society. Wide-angle lens, comprehensive view of society. It's a thousand pages, nearly. Um, I'm of that generation where we didn't have videos, we didn't have DVRs, we didn't have anything like that. So you know, you tell he went off at midnight in England. You read, you mm -hmm. know, you you read, and mm -hmm. because I didn't really want to have to get involved with too much chit chat with my parents or with my brothers. The bigger the novel, the better. Yeah, yeah. You know? I mean, I felt the same way. It was Vanity Thackeray, yeah. Vanity Fair, and um, but also Virginia Woolf. I mean, that was what really made me want to start writing prose. Mm -hmm. was, was reading to the lighthouse, just what she was able to achieve 
in prose. Yeah. But you know, not to, to sort of keep hearkening on this Caribbean designation, but um, I also wonder if you felt at all any sort of consciousness or awareness of Caribbean writers came before you hmm. as a writer. Um, because, I mean, for me growing up, I, did, I never read Caribbean writers mm. in school. They just didn't, they didn't give them to you to read in school. It was always purely British writers. Mm. And I remember the first time I read a Caribbean novel, it was V.S. Naipaul's um, House for Mr. Biswas. And I was then in sixth form. I mean, that was like a, a, a very new thing to teach a West Indian author to West Indian students. Um, and I, I really did sort of begin to feel like there was a generation before me who had, who had begun to do this interesting thing. Um, and I wonder if you had any thoughts on that. You know, I finished a degree in English without reading any West Indian writers. I mean, the writers that really made me want to write that were all the writers I've just named because but you never thought you could do it because they, they're building cathedrals and um, elaborate palaces of prose mm -hmm. that are way beyond anything you could ever hope to emulate. Um, but when I was 20, I came to this country, um, you know, on a, to ride from New York to L.A. on a Greyhound bus. Um, cheapest way possible, seven-day ticket, see, first time I'd left the country, you know, left Britain. And of course, one of the things you do when you're on a long bus journeys like that is you read. And so I began to read American fiction, and it was really American fiction like that who? struck a chord with me. Like um, what writers? Well, particularly Richard Wright, mm. um, but also Theodore Dreiser, um, Faulkner, um, John Das Passos, a whole bunch of writers who seemed very plugged in to describe in, the, in an exciting way the world that I was actually seeing out of the window of the bus and, and were helping to explicate that society to me. Um, I mean, I, I wasn't, I was reading Anna Karenina or Dr. Zhivago for different types of reasons, for reasons of escapism, for reasons of romanticism. But I suddenly found that literature had an immediacy as I was traveling across America. Um, and I went back and, you know, lurched to the end of my degree and then started to read Caribbean writers, you know, mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. then I re became aware that there were people before me. I mean, the kind of work that people like you do in an institution like this and other professors around the this country and Britain and other countries in Europe teaching Caribbean writers now, it really wasn't right, taught right. back then. So nobody was going to offer me a syllabus with V.S. Mm -hmm. Naipaul on it mm -hmm. or George Lamin or C.L.R. James or Jean Rees or any of the people who are canonical. Yeah. Uh, you had to discover them for yourselves. Right. Now, mercifully, people like you are putting it before students and, and uh, helping them to to see that this work exists alongside the canonical English and American writers. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Thinking again about um, all the interesting things you do with structure in your novels and the fact that because you're often trying to re reflect these, you know, disrupted and ruptured lives and histories, you, your structures, you know, will reflect mm -hmm. that by yes. being broken. Um, how much do you play around with structure as a writer? When, like in your first draft, do you often sort of do you have it sort of figured out first? Do you find yourself, oh, this isn't working at all, chuck it, try another? I mean, how much do you play around with it and how much do you enjoy playing around with it? Uh, 
I, I don't have it figured out to start with. It's a, I discover the structure as I'm doing it. I have a rough scaffolding, you know. Mm -hmm. At some point, the scaffolding has to go and the thing has to stand up by itself. Um, but that moment of transfer, when you throw the scaffolding away and you know it's working, I don't know when that's going to happen. I just hope and pray that the, its <laughs> foundation is solid enough and it will stand up. But I have a rough, very rough idea of form. But uh, everything is determined in fiction, as far as um, my own notion of fiction is concerned. Everything is determined by character. Mm. And, you know, when I am teaching fiction, to students, the thing that they quickly get fed up with me um, over is hearing me say over and over and over again um, is that character feeds plot. Character mm -hmm. feeds plot. Mm. Plot doesn't yeah. feed character. You can't write a novel based on plot. You can if you're John Grisham. Right. You know, right. and right. a number of other people who, who are doing very nicely, thank you very much. Um, <laughs> but a type of fiction that you're talking about, I think, we're, right. excuse me, that we're talking about, um, and the type of novels we've been talking about thus far, are character-based novels. I mean, and then the character also suggests the structure, especially if it's a character Absolutely. whose story can't be told by her own voice, say. Yes, the yeah. character determines the structure, the character determines everything that will happen. It's a, it's a leap of faith for a lot of people, you know, to, to actually understand that um, if you don't have the character, if you don't have that voice, if you don't have a profound understanding of the individual, you, you're not going anywhere. You're putting the, you're putting the cart before the horse. Mm -hmm. and that's why novels, that's why good fiction takes a long time. The gestation period is not that novelists are lazy people and they, you know, they take three or four years to write a book because they're watching a terrific amount of Law and Order. And, you know, uh oh. You know, um, it's because they're trying to engage with those elusive people who are actually the heart and the soul and the, yeah. the blood and the sinews of their work. Yeah. If you write a particular type of fiction, you can do two or three or more books a year because you're not waiting for character. Right. The plot is driving it. And waiting for character, I, I remember you once talking in an interview, not that I'm stalking you on mm. Google or anything, but, no. <laughs> but I remember you once talking in an interview. Um, about how sometimes in, in your research, in the process of re researching the history mm -hmm. of a character, that's when the character's voice is really beginning yeah. to come to you. So how, is, is that a part of the writing process that you also particularly enjoy, the research? Um, I enjoy it, but you, you, one has to be extremely careful because research is a, researching is a lot easier than writing. I know. So, I mean, it's a lot more pleasurable, <laughs> yeah. too. So, you know, you can spend days and days and weeks in a library, and pe you know, people say, well, what are you doing? You say, I'm doing my research. Well, excuse <laughs> me, when are you actually going to start writing? Um, research is fun. You know, everybody likes to be a kind of mini detective. You're on the trail of something, you're piecing something. But at a certain point, you've got to get on with it. So I do enjoy, mm -hmm. very much enjoy the research. Mm -hmm. um, there is a danger that one can yeah, become seduced by that. Yeah. What was the most difficult of your novels to write? The either either or the next one. <laughs> really? Yeah. 
the one you're writing now? Or I'm not writing one. Oh, okay. But the one the that's going to come. Bit, <laughs> I got it. So. <laughs> but seriously, they're all was, difficult. They're all difficult yeah. in different ways. No, the same way. In what way? <laughs> it's a miserable process. <laughs> I mean, it's it's a miserable process which is illuminated along the way by moments where you think you know something. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, it's lonely, isn't That's it? it? I mean, it's yes. not a team yeah. sport. If right. you're writing a play, if you're writing a film, you have a director, you have a producer, you have actors, you have somewhere to go, um, a rehearsal space or a location that you're filming at. And you can besport yourself in the bar in the theater <laughs> afterwards and chit-chat and pretend that they're actually listening to you. Um, but if you're writing a novel, I'm, I'm a, you know this, Margaret. It's just you, um, and it's not—it's not always, you know, fun. Nobody makes people make documentaries about how they made that film, the backstory of how they made, how they put this production together at the Lincoln Center. Can you imagine a film about how a novel was written? No, I'd be lying on the couch. Got, got up in the morning, <laughs> brushed his teeth, you know, watched a bit of TV, had some granola. <laughs> It's a bad film. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.